1990, Michael Crichton's cautionary novel Jurassic Park captured the world's imagination and birthed a multi-billion dollar franchise. It tells the now familiar story of a wildlife park composed of long extinct dinosaurs, cloned using blood samples extracted from ancient mosquitoes. When things start to go wrong at the park, not long before its planned opening, Jurassic Park's investors demand an inspection from experts in the field. Doctors Ian Malcolm, Alan Grant, and Ellie Sattler are all brought to the park as consultants, along with lawyer Donald Gennaro and system engineer Dennis Nedry. Though at first blown away by the wonders of the park, the characters soon make disconcerting discoveries, belying an arrogant carelessness of park designers. Malcolm, meanwhile, spends his time expressing his doubts on the many things taken for granted by park controllers, while creator John Hammond extols the many technological advancements of his island, from the high levels of automation to the extraordinary number of animals they've created. Both of these features become key points in the approaching disaster, helped along by deliberate sabotage by the disgruntled Nedry. The park loses power, leaving Grant and Hammond's grandchildren stranded in the middle of the park, and Malcolm seriously injured by an attack from a recently freed T-Rex. What follows is a 200-page tale of Grant's journey with the kids and the efforts of the park office to bring the park back online. These efforts are further sprinkled with errors and short-sightedness that worsen the disaster, while characters are systematically picked off by escaped dinosaurs. When power is restored to the electrical fences, the park is more or less secure, though not in time to prevent many gruesome deaths of characters both named and unnamed. Grant, Sattler, and Gennaro, under duress, begin to take census of the number of animals bred on the island, but are soon evacuated with the rest of the survivors by the Costa Rican military, right before the destruction of the park by explosives dropped from the sky. The end of the book finds the survivors of Jurassic Park held by the Costa Rican government while the crisis is investigated, and leaves the reader with a chilling sense that not all the dinosaurs had been on the island when it was destroyed. Hello, and welcome to Sci-Fi Sidebar. I'm your co-host, Peter, and, I'm and Chucklehead. You're the co-host, CC, Chucklehead, Chucklehead. Uh, I don't think our fans know that's what uh, it stands for. That's our code, that's the code name. Anyway, Chucklehead, Chucklehead. <laughs> okay, so uh, this week we're going to be covering the kind of the expert portion. Uh, we're going to go over the results of CC's research into, uh, you know, the the wonderful world of Jurassic Park. So, Cece, what do you got for us? This has been a journey, Peach, of thinking, oh my god, there's going to be so much material about Jurassic Park, and then being like, there is a lot of material about Jurassic Park, and then being like, why aren't I finding anything interesting to talk about? And then panicking and having a ton to talk about. So, <laughs> like, in the last hour and a half, I've gone from being like, this is going to be a short one, to I'm going to have to keep things rolling on this. <laughs> Oh, uh, God. Well, we can get bogged down just about anything, including how we found our research. So. Yes, listeners, I'm very excited because um, the book where I got a lot of these essays is of the same um, <clears throat> series that had the Ender's Game essays in it, the pop culture and philosophy series. And I was really disappointed because I couldn't get it through like any means of Peter's academic library or anything else like that. So... I just on a whim decided to look at my local public library to see if they had it and they had not just Jurassic Park and philosophy but like dozens of pop culture and philosophy books so they're pretty much going to be doing our work for us from here on out excellent 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 <laughs> we're all about shortcuts here um but no for real if you guys are interested in these articles are that I'm telling you about and all the other abundant articles that I didn't get to really read or get into or share with you guys. Um, you might be able to find it at your local library, so uh, seek that out for sure. The awesome. first article I want to talk about is entitled, Damn You Michael Crichton! <laughs> Which is from Jurassic Park and Philosophy. Um, it's written by Nicholas Michaud and Jessica Watkins. So basically, the this article is arguing that Jurassic Park is a little bit too cautionary and cautions the wrong group because we all think about Jurassic Park as being about like the arrogance of science and how people will take it too far and think that they're like unto a god on basically have no rules <clears throat> but this article basically points out like science is 
one of the most humbling pursuits. Like, when you're researching and learning about the world and how complex it is, it really makes you feel very small. Um, for example, so we all know the story of when the church and religious folks used to be obsessed with the idea that um, not only was there created in six days and you were created on the seventh day and you were the grandest creation of all humanity, but also you were the literal center of the universe on this planet with not just the sun, but the whole rest of the universe revolving around us. That was what religion taught us. What science taught us was that we are on just sort of a random rock rotating around a random star in a immensely huge universe that is literally incomprehensible to us. We can try to comprehend it, but we can't. For more on that, check out Peter's podcast, The Universe in You. (laughs) (coughs) That was was a sneaky plug. Good job. Yeah, really. Um, But no, I thought it was really interesting that they were like, science doesn't make you arrogant. Science shrinks your significance so much and brings it into sharp focus for you. Yeah, that's really cool. Especially because, like, you know, we, like, the more we look at the universe, the more we realize that maybe the only unique thing about us is that we are life. And maybe that's rare. Intelligent. But in the grand scheme of things, anything, well, okay, but, like, we also haven't found life anywhere, but, you know, we're evidence of it anyway. Yeah, no, that's true. Evidence of life in, you know, the way we describe it. Exactly. So, like, maybe that's the thing that makes us a little bit unique and special, but, like, even then, the universe is big enough where I would be shocked to find out that we were the only form of intelligent life, or even, yeah, the only form of intelligent life. Yeah, definitely. Um, So, Michonne and Watkins basically argue that the lesson of Jurassic Park shouldn't be about the arrogance of science, it should be that you should be careful because science can give you the illusion of control, but... The arrogance comes from human nature, not from science. We'll always find something to be arrogant about. I mean, there are people who believe that because they have a direct line to God through prayer, they can heal people, they can interpret the will of God on earth, you know, suicide bombers, like people like that. They have so much faith to a point of arrogance that how they perceive the world is the right way and everyone else is wrong and everyone else is against them. And these people can do immense damage in the world. Some of them are benign, but not all. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not even all tied to religion. There are, you know... Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I'm not trying to put religion on blast like, here, but... <laughs> yeah, and there's, like, cults, which are, I guess, religion, but not really. I wouldn't define cults as really religion. Yeah. Um, but, like, personality cults, things like that, where, like, you know, that kind of thing happens. And science, I feel like you're right, and this article is definitely right, where it's, like, it's oftentimes the opposite of it. Yeah, and the other thing they were saying is that science kind of self-regulates because science never deals in absolutes. I mean, people always like saying, well, you know, evolution's just a theory and stuff like that. And yeah, it is a theory. It could be disproven. doesn't seem very likely at this point, but all we do is <clears throat> gather evidence and sort of form an argument. We never say, this is the absolute truth. Only in other areas is do people mess with the concept of absolute truth. Science defers to the cautious. The next article I want to talk about is the past in a petri dish, which is also from uh, Jurassic Park of Philosophy. In fact, assume that if I don't attribute it to a separate <laughs> publication, it's from Jurassic Park of Philosophy. Um, <laughs> basically, this article is about... Um, it kind of calls back that conversation that Wu and Hammond had, where we wanted to make changes to the dinosaurs to sort of design them and make them closer to the human idea of what dinosaurs were rather than the actual idea of the dinosaurs that they created. Kind of bringing up these things like, well, they're too fast, they're too this, they're too that. It doesn't really jive with how people always imagined it. They're not going to want to see this. They're going to want to see what they always imagined. And Hammond's like, no, you can't do that because what we've created is real. And it was like, but it's super not real is the thing. Like, we, we spliced this together with DNA. We, you know, aren't even really sure that we did it right. We don't know if their behaviors are accurate. We don't know if, like, anything about them is accurate, really. And we never will know because we can't actually get in a time machine and go see what dinosaurs were like in their environment. Like, nothing about this is really actually true. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think I remember you and I having a conversation about this like before we ever thought of doing this podcast. We just like we should jump at Jurassic mm-hmm. Park because we do. Because because that's the thing we do because <laughs> we're the worst. And so no, I'm definitely that coming up in conversation. <laughs> Sorry, you're right. I mis I mispronounced that. That's my bad. I did that again every, <laughs> every time. time. No, so like, it's definitely true that not only do they have no idea, like maybe also like the environment was different. Like the oxygen levels back then were different. Mm-hmm. The temperature was very different. That might affect their growth and development. Absolutely. And also microbes. Yeah, exactly. You know, just microbes. Just leave it at that. <laughs> Maybe there's some microbes in there that are messing things many, up. Many, many, many things that they complexly do. Just ignore. And interact with living creatures. Yeah, because they're living creatures with, you know, millions of cells, and that's something that we have to worry about. Absolutely. So there's, like, a lot of things there. And then you add into the fact that we just kind of just drop some DNA in. Just just mix things up a little bit. A little, a little dash of DNA in here, and it's basically the same <laughs> thing. Yeah, it's totally real definitely real Hammond don't you even worry about it this article (laughs) pointed out that grass hadn't even evolved when dinosaurs were on the earth and you have these visions of the dinosaurs walking through these giant grassy plains (laughs) and it's like it's so important to our cultural perception of dinosaurs is these images because of Jurassic Park (laughs) the irony is like it's so real peach (laughs) it's like what what informed on what like did Jurassic Park, you know, kind of inform on how we modern our modern view of dinosaurs or not? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a, a give-take, right? I think the Jurassic Park's probably the single most influential uh, influencer <laughs> of modern It's definitely the biggest dinosaurs. pop culture uh, dinosaur-based item. Yeah, I mean, it's not like we weren't fascinated by dinosaurs before, but I don't think it was anything near the level of obsession it was, that, that Jurassic Park It was every on. childhood's obsession right like yeah every, you know every kid wanted to be a paleontologist but i, I don't even but know like, i mean was that it was really prevalent before jurassic park came out but like i wonder if it was if it's more so now because now like, i don't i didn't watch jurassic park till i was like in my mid-teens too. i didn't watch jurassic park until i was in my 20s so that's my bad well that's that's a failure of yourself i read the book first so yeah me too i read <laughs> that when i was like 16 <laughs> you know i couldn't read until i was 23 <laughs> I can't believe you're bringing this up on the podcast. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> the next article I wanted to discuss was Playing God in Jurassic Park by Jeff Ewing. And in this one, Peter, I can read so well, I can read the word Nietzsche. So <laughs> I've come a long way. <laughs> um, this guy, this article is basically like all about applying Nietzsche's philosophy to Jurassic Park. So we weren't kidding about the philosophy park, folks. We found it. It took us like four episodes, <laughs> but we found it at He's last. He's a real philosopher. We've heard of him. Um, <laughs> anyway, basically, they were talking about Nietzsche's concept of will to power. And listen, I have not done a lot of formal philosophy studying in my day. So, like, if I get this super wrong, forgive me and email me and we'll do a correction over it but like this is how i understand it to mean it's basically the driving force of humanity to achieve supremacy right to you know achieve your ambitions and like have kind of the ultimate power over yourself in the world um okay yeah basically nietzsche says like that's kind of what we all are and that's sort of virtuous in his opinion for a person to pursue their self-interest in that way. He thinks the natural order of things is for the weak to fall before the strong and the strong to shape the world. <clears throat> okay, I'm tracking. Yes. Was cool. that <laughs> The end. Just kidding. So, um, <laughs> this article sets up Hammond as kind of a almost ubermensch who rises above the normal human capacities and other natural limitations that most humans are subject to and has sort of the ability to go far beyond what normal humanity has done. And not only does he have the ability, he feels like there's almost a societal duty upon him to do it. Like, because he can do it, he has to do it. Um, And so the park is like this huge scientific achievement, but it's also an immense practical failure because Hammond fell short. He and his cohort... We're not able to sort of achieve perfect mastery 
over themselves. And as a result, they couldn't achieve mastery over the park. So, like, if they had been able to control the park, Nietzschean argument would have basically been deaths of employees and others, you know, it's unfortunate, but they were just natural stepping stones on the path to changing the world forever. Um, which, by the way, made me think of Jurassic World because it seems like that's sort of the path it, it took. And, like, Jurassic World, that whole, like, new series, it's definitely just blockbusters, you know what I mean? It's not nearly as morally rich as Jurassic Park original was. But it's nope, it still yep, carries right. forth the same themes. Um, Whether it's intentionally or not. Yeah, really. exactly. It's sort of inherited them, right? It's not, it's not really expanding on them so much, but it, it's taking them on. And so when I was reading this, I thought of Jurassic World because I'm like, that kind of is where they're at. They're like, you know, InGen back then, it was a different company. You know, we're not, like, obviously things that happened were terribly tragic, but, like, we're good now. We have control over the dinosaurs. Like, that's stuff's all a shame, but hey, now we have dinosaurs in the world, and isn't that freaking awesome? Go us. <laughs> I mean, yeah. That's a... Yeah. Yeah. Dinosaurs are great. Dinosaurs are great. <laughs> that'd, be pretty, that'd be pretty sweet. Uh, yeah. I mean, I feel like if Jurassic World existed, I'd want to go. Probably couldn't afford it, but I'd want to go. Um, Did we talk about a few weeks ago, so just like, you know, kind of sneak in here and side, sidebar this, but... uh. <laughs> Did we talk about a few weeks ago how like it would just be totally sick to have a, a miniature dinosaur and how they just completely screwed up their their economic model? <laughs> I don't think we did talk about that. I mean, think about that. That's they like a hundred percent true. Dinosaurs. They could have had many dinosaur food that you had to buy from InGen. You know, they could have done so much. Yeah. Otherwise, it would die. Yeah. But I think like they missed an opportunity there. Yeah, I mean, how much would it cost though? for individuals i think that the theory was probably that the park was a more profitable venture and i mean the whole series of parks like jurassic park was going to be bigger than disney world i mean it i don't know sure that's true no i mean like that was hammond's plan that was his dream like he's gonna oh, have okay because they're the talking about the projection huh? oh just like a ton of oh you mean like parks all over the world i think I mean, like jurassic park the park would be bigger than You're disney like, well, world it can't really expand park. on a kind of an island <laughs> Yeah, the island and, like, you know, bloodthirsty dinosaurs. Well, <laughs> and by the way, I was thinking about this today. I was like, they make a point of talking about how dinosaurs can swim, so why did they think the island was good enough? <laughs> I never thought about it before. I never thought of that. I know. That didn't occur to me. I was like, they could just swim to the mainland, y'all. Like, <laughs> you got, y'all fucked up. Even with the knowledge that at the end of the book, it's, like, implied that, maybe even more than implied that the raptors escaped or, like, a group of raptors escaped, even with that... I never thought of like maybe they just swam. <laughs> I always assumed they oh, they stood away on a cargo ship or something, but now I'm like, yeah, that could have happened. I've got to assume that's just like too much water. Yeah, probably, and I don't know. Maybe the salt water would mess with them. I don't know. Is again, as I told you, I had no idea dinosaurs could swim, and was super not okay with that concept in my mind. So <laughs> it's still bothering you to this it day, is, and I don't think it will ever stop bothering me. Anyway, back to Nietzsche. Um, the point is that, basically, if Hammond had been able to exhibit self-mastery, he could have recognized his inability to exert total mastery over the system that he was creating, if that makes sense. Um, so even, like, even Nietzsche would have been disapproving of Hammond because, uh, basically, well, so there's this quote. It says, to Nietzsche... Hammond's failure wasn't a moral one, it was a weakness. Hammond was too weak to control the external world because he didn't have control over his internal world. So it's not that he let people die, it's that he sort of failed at his goal. So he's not, he doesn't achieve that Ubermensch status, he just sort of tries for it. It's a swing and a miss. I would also... No, he definitely does not achieve that status. Yeah, I would also... Because he's, he's, he's dead, he died. Um, That's a prerequisite I think to not It's die. also worth mentioning that, like, in terms of Hammond weakness, um, it's not just like his sort of ignorance and his like unwillingness to critically examine his plans, but um, it's also greed, right? Like, you think about oh yeah, for sure. It, it's it's so it's so prevalent in the book, like the way he cut corners and like I just keep thinking about how if he hadn't screwed over Nedry so bad, none of this would have happened. Like <laughs> he's really making. Yeah. Like, rough on Nedry, and Nedry obviously was a big dick, but, like, it, it, it's sort of, like, well, you don't, I don't know, 
poke a bear. When you're dealing with an asshole, you don't give him an excuse yeah. to be an asshole. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, I think that I mean, also contributed like massively to the failure of the park. Well, I mean, greed always gets you in the end, you know? It does, yeah. I mean, it's a tale as old as time, but yeah, I just definitely thought well, we were talking about ways that Hammond was weak and reasons he failed. That's definitely a big part of it. Absolutely, absolutely. And also the fact that he was kind of like really, really pushing for that opening. Like, you know, maybe the park would have worked if it had had like you know kinks worked yeah, out yeah they taken some time i mean if they had if, if he wasn't already thinking about the next park when the first park was like a babe in baby steps yeah and like planning out like where it's gonna be and shit like i don't know i would go for the proof of concept park and really devote all my attention to that first <laughs> i'm still so mad about the five-year timeline that's crazy to me they made so many freaking animals and why didn't they have a pilot program you know why didn't they have like we're gonna make like an animal of each species and like study their behavior and like their freaking weaknesses because they're obviously a huge security liability because they're gigantic monsters (laughs) one of these articles i forget which one but it basically was like (laughs) considering the nature of jurassic park this security system ranks pretty high on the list of the most important security systems of all time like (laughs) if there's one thing you don't want to skimp on it's security (laughs) (laughs) oh that's a good point no, it's a hundred percent a good point. Yeah, I mean, and most of it was automated, which like, yeah, automation's great, but as but even with your modern computers, you want a human backup. Yeah. And and like the fact that basically the entire system hinged on Nedry fixing it, like. Yeah, which is wild. Why did you not have a resident computer program? Yeah, for serious. Maybe they that were was planning a, committed on to your company. Hiring one eventually. I don't know. We've already, we've already talked this to death. Probably in the last episode, just like all the <laughs> moments of sheer idiocy. But I'm still mad. I'm still mad. The anger continues. All right. <laughs> My burning, seething rage is not gone. It's not sated. My bloodlust is still there. <laughs> My bloodlust, a carryover from the Martian, is still unsatisfied. <laughs> it's still going. All right. Next. <laughs> Even after all the dino deaths. Um. Not enough dino deaths. More next dino deaths. Up is Who Gets a Second Chance by Lisa Kadonaga. No one. No one got a second chance. (laughs) Uh, The end. Definitely. Ian Malcolm got a second chance because he got resurrected. Straight up. What? I'm just saying. He explicitly dies at the end of Jurassic Park, the book. And then in Lost World, the book is just like, oh yeah, no, I was just pretty injured, though. (laughs) I was just fairly injured. On the island. (laughs) Did they really? Yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. I forgot about <laughs> Yeah. They were like, oh, where's Malcolm? And they're like, oh, he didn't make it. And everyone's sad because he died. And then the whole island gets firebombed by Costa Rica. And so there's no way he freaking survived. But he gets resurrected in Lost World too. I get it. Michael Crichton's not a sequel guy. He didn't plan on writing a sequel. So he had to bring his, his main characters back. But, um, anyway, okay. Who gets a second chance? A second chance. By Lisa Kadanaga. Couldn't even say it right that time. I had a second chance and I blew it. <clears throat> Lisa Katanaga wants to talk about how you choose candidates for de-extinction. Um, the whole sort of premise of her article is comparing the value of resurrecting T-Rex's species versus uh, the species of fish called Gila crassicauda, maybe. Um which is also known as the thick-tailed chub, which is a small fish that went extinct less than 100 years ago. Um, so basically, she talks about different goals of de-extinction and like, which species would better satisfy that. Uh, when you want to talk about sort of the PR benefits of de-extinction, basically getting people really hype about biological diversity, getting tons of funding, inspiring young scientists to... Or, to pursue science and higher degrees and so on and so forth and get into this field t-rex wins every time it's you know it's sexy it's exciting it's like every you know photogenic species that inspires conservation did i already go on this rant uh yeah sure yeah i don't think i don't know you know about how like everybody wants to resurrect or keep pandas alive and all that stuff but like nobody wants to 
Oh, just because they're cute, yeah, yeah. save any of the ugly animals, <laughs> like the small and unimportant animals. And um, they talked about uh, a guy at the London Zoo who was preparing to receive two giant pandas, and there was all this hype about it and, like, all this money pouring in. And he's like, the amount of money that it takes to build this habitat and, like, support these having these giant pandas here, we could support dozens and dozens of species of endangered insects, but nobody cares about them. Well, I think we should kill all insects, but that's yes, just me. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I think that's probably. Yeah, I totally get that though. <laughs> Especially like when we look at how realistic those things are, like it's probably way easier for us to bring an animal that's went extinct in the last hundred years back. Especially like if we had the foresight to get like samples of them before they went extinct. Yeah, I mean, I'm certain that there's samples of most of the animals that have gone extinct recently. Just like even taxidermied samples. I I don't know very much about it, but I'm. I feel confident that you have a decent shot at getting DNA out of that. Listen, if there's not people out there taking samples, no one's planning for the future. Because <laughs> we can definitely... At some point, we're going to be able to do this. Maybe not easily, but like with relative confidence. And we won't be able to do it if we don't have genetic material to do it. With. Yes, so. definitely. Um, and we'll talk about talk more about the day extinction in the next article. But um, just to continue with this one. So the other thing that T-Rex definitely wins out at is prestige because a it's such an enormous challenge to bring that species back to life like there's a yeah. mind-boggling number of hurdles again as we talked about at current science it's impossible maybe things will change maybe we'll come up with different ways to resurrect creatures without having their dna sequence which i'd love to see that day it would be very fascinating to see that day but um as of right now, we're pretty much like, no, it's not going to happen. So in terms of prestige, if you had the opportunity to either bring back to life a T-Rex or a thick tail chub, the T-Rex would be <laughs> way more exciting, way more prestige, way more funding, way more for your reputation in every way. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's, yeah, it's flashy. So that's definitely true. But like... If we're if we have resources to commit one more or the other, and we can bring back, you know, the what was it, half tailed chub? chub. What was thick it? Tail chub. Thick tailed chub. So if we're gonna bring back the thick tailed chub or the T Rex, you know, we're still looking at financial capital for either of them. Find oh, substantial financial capital. Wait, sure, that good. That's good. Mm. And <laughs> so, like, yeah, not regardless, it's gonna be not gonna be a cheap project. But I'm sure the T Rex is in the era of you know billions of dollars hundreds of billions of dollars Definitely. whereas you know maybe the chub thing is like many millions of dollars orders of magnitude different oh definitely yeah just in terms of cost but it's funny um uh the author of this article was saying that it's sort of like a uh, like a wealth signaler like I think about Hammond's cane with the giant chunk of amber with a mosquito in it, just like, or like right. a sports car, basically people being like, pouring their money into these big flashy things just to show off <laughs> that they can, basically. It's it's almost so like that. It's the scientist sports car. Yeah, I mean, I almost want to call out, like, research institutes that just have tons and tons of money and, like, tons and tons of support. <laughs> I mean, can't you kind of see that? Like, a really prestigious school with a humongous um, endowment is just like, yeah, let's, uh, let's bring some of this and be the first school to bring back to life a dinosaur. No, I can totally see that. You're right. That would be pretty dope, and actually. I'd want to go to that school. I'd buy a hook, line, and sinker. Yep, that would that would do it for me, except that, like, you know, I'm kind of... I don't think I'm, well, I'm not going back to school at this point. But man, if I was like 12, I'd totally go to the school with that has the dinosaur. I'd have their outside. sweatshirt. I would have their pennant. <laughs> I would be bought I'd, in. I'd, I'd pretend I went there. Um, I probably wouldn't get in if they were doing that kind of stuff. That's probably true. But I would pretend I did. Uh, yeah. Like a competition to get in would be pretty fierce. Even worse than like an MIT or a Columbia now. But anyway. Yeah, there's plenty of Ivy Leagues. How many T-Rexes are there? <laughs> Checkmate, Harvard. That's right. Suck it. Um, yes. So anyway, it would definitely <laughs> okay, bring so next prestige start? to whoever achieved it, despite the obviously enormous upfront costs. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I'm just not sure it's worth it. Yeah, well, I mean, 
yeah, that's the question, isn't it? It would be wondrous. It would be extraordinary. Wouldn't be necessarily like financially practical, even if you could say it's like worth it. It's still not like the best use of your money necessarily. I mean, think about all the people you could feed with that. Like we still have people starving with ringworm, you know, and not, not ringworm, ringworm. Everyone gets ringworm, but um, roundworm. That's what I was going for. <laughs> Some okay. kind of worm. A worm. I'm saying ringworm isn't a particular indicator of poverty, okay? My point is, people do get ringworm, though, and stop that, too, while you're at it. Um, with your Just T-Rex while, money. While you're sitting here. <laughs> with your, use that good, good T-Rex money. Get that thick-tailed chub thing. Bring that back. And then and then go it's, after ringworms. Distribute right? some antifungal cream for ringworm. <laughs> Just like lots of uh, and maybe kids won't want to go to your school, but at least at least they, they won't, won't have ringworm. Say <laughs> so you have to come to my school if you want my lotrimin. <laughs> lotrimin, you. That's <laughs> the worst school ever. <laughs> All the hallways are slightly greasy. Oh <laughs> no! But very clean. Uh, well, I mean, not really clean, just free of fungus. There's, <laughs> like, so much bacteria. Oh, my God, so much bacteria. Everyone has the flu all the time. Yeah, but, like, th- those those gym floors? Na- ain't nobody getting athlete's foot. <laughs> ain't nobody getting athlete's foot. <laughs> In terms of sort of a humanity's obligation, obviously we gotta go with the chub, because... We did not cause T-Rexes to go extinct. We had no part in that. <laughs> that w- I did, actually, Oh, you though. did. Tell that story. Yeah, it was me. Share with us. Um, well, I-, I got in a blue please telephone box. <laughs> <laughs> the rest is history. Like, I just want to have some fun. <laughs> <laughs> I don't let them really show drunk. this on the TV show. <laughs> <laughs> That's that Pompeii episode. Everyone got mad. <laughs> <laughs> did did you know that with two hearts I absorb alcohol twice as or alcohol runs in my blood twice as fast? Yeah, I was gonna say hearts don't absorb alcohol. Peter. I'm sorry. Do you know their physiology, CC? No, you you're don't. Right, you're right. So shut up. <laughs> shut your face. I clearly I stand corrected. Moving on. They say they have two hearts, but one's actually a liver. Is <laughs> it? Uh, he's a party lord. It's two livers. <laughs> party lords, the lesser known cousins of the time lords. <laughs> That's why the doctor destroyed the time lords. They were always trying to put the kibosh on his party. <laughs> uh, okay. Okay, anyway. Talk about sidebars. <laughs> so... As a sidebar into... At least it was in the same genre. Yes. So basically the idea is that not all extinctions are considered equal. You know, if we have a moral imperative to resurrect any species, it's gotta be the ones that we killed off, right? Um, and that's really... Probably. Pretty much most of the species that have gone extinct in the last couple hundred years have been at least somewhat due to us. And I mean, even longer ago than that, we've been causing extinctions through overhunting and that sort of a thing. Well, we're the worst, that's why. Yeah, I mean, even before we were, like, really the worst, we were still the worst. We've always been the worst. It's like humanity's greatest imperative. <laughs> we are the ultimate invasive species. I'd stand by that, actually. That's totally yeah, true. Definitely. Um, but anyway, if your concern that you're trying to address through de-extinction is an ecological one, you want to restore an ecosystem, then again, obviously, a T-Rex ain't going to help you there. You gotta have... Are you, are you sure? Yeah. Pretty sure. Do you disagree? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess it, I mean, it would definitely impact the ecosystem. I'll tell you that much. I think we should have to get rid of a couple apex predators and we're in business. Yeah, that's that's really good. That's always worked super well. Introduce a new species to a uh, foreign ecosystem and let it uh, take care of your problems. And then no, no see, more what, what we're doing happen. first, though, is what we're doing first is we'll remove the other apex predators and then add a new one. Like, see, before we never <laughs> removed the old apex predators. It's a nice, like, multi-tool of an apex predator. Exactly, exactly. It's like the Swiss Army 
Who Apex needs lions and tigers and bears when you have a T-Rex? <laughs> it does all those things. Lions and tigers and bears. Oh, it's no. It's predator. Good job. <laughs> that was a really delayed reaction. I'm sorry. <laughs> hey, just to be clear, that's not going to be my bad editing that the reason that's 30 seconds late, it's going to be CC's bad brain. <laughs> Look, man. I got nothing. I got no defense. It's just where I'm at. Okay. CC, you know what? Wait, wait. You know what the... You know, do you, but do you have another article? I do have another article. Excellent. Um, so this is actually kind of a overall perspective on de-extinction. It's not really Jurassic Park specific, but um, I think we we're both pretty interested in it when we did the first episode, so I think it's worth exploring further. Um, basically, okay. there it addresses four arguments for de-extinctions and four arguments against de-extinction. Basically, there's the justice argument, which we were just talking about. The idea that, like, we owe it to nature and to the species that we have, you know, had a hand in destroying that we bring them back and, like, restore what we have harmed. Right, that's our bad. Let's fix it. Sort of connected is the reestablishment of lost value argument. Um, basically saying something's missing because the species is gone, so we need to bring it back. There's the creating value argument, basically, um, I mean, you can create a value in a lot of ways, right? Like, you can contribute positively to an ecosystem that needed that for whatever reason, or there's just the quote-unquote created value of the scientific achievement it would take to get to that point, and the wonder and all that would be inspired. Uh, and then there's the sort okay. of last resort conservation argument saying that through, you know, preparing to resurrect species through genetically engineered means, we have a sort of plan B if all of our primary conservation efforts have failed us. So just to get into these pro arguments a little bit deeper, um, the justice argument I actually thought was really interesting. This was like a really analytical article. It sort of took... Um, it was very, like, almost emotionless, which is interesting. Whenever you're reading an ethics article, like, it, that's really what it should be, right? It should be, like, kind of cool and analytical, but, like... Raw yeah, calculation you, of you fact. You don't expect it. Yeah, exactly. So they're talking about um, the idea that resurrecting a species would not do reparation to the members of that species. Because when you harm someone, you owe that person because they have like individual goals and autonomy and so on and so forth. A species does not have autonomy. It doesn't desire anything. So by bringing back a species, you're not doing good to anyone in particular. You're not bringing back the exact animals who you harmed. You're just resurrecting their species. So <clears throat> in that sense, like that's not actually really a good reason to do it. Um, if you think about like murder victims, you know, they're dead. You can't make it up to them. You can't bring them back. But what you can can do is acknowledge the wrong, you know, imprison the perpetrator, bring closure to the family, um, attempt to rehabilitate the person, you know, and try to mitigate further wrongdoing in the world and further harm from the initial crime. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes complete sense. But I guess I'd have no argument against that. Yeah, it's a, that's why I was like, it's kind of like, it's very unsentimental, <clears throat> I guess is the way I'm looking for. I mean, my kind of point would be like, the idea of like crimes against humanity. Like, Go on. If you look at humanity as like, you know, because by and large, one human doesn't matter. Like in the cold calculus of, of humanity and, and species preservation. There are a lot of us. A hundred million humans don't really matter. You know, like, yeah, we could probably regenerate the population of humanity and make the species survive with an eighth of the world's population. Sure. Easily, without any adverse effect of you know any possible inbreeding. So I like, that's true. So as far as that concerned, it's fine. Like that, but like the driving humanity to extinction would be a crime against kind of the the conglomerate that is man, right? Mm hmm So it's not like you know, like murder is a terrible thing, but. You know, if you're when you're talking about a game of species and things like that, you know, one murder isn't a big deal. But I guess my thought of it's like, it's like the worst kind of crime to drive a species to extinction. Like, 
murder of an entire species is the worst crime. That's fair. But I mean, you're sort of equating... I guess it seems like you're sort of assigning human-level value to these animals. Right. That's 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 one way to think about it. But it is not the necessary way to think about it, if you know what I mean. Okay, but like if we're not having any sort of accountability for humanity as far as extinction is concerned. Cuz like, you know, we don't really. Right? We just kind of go, "Oh man, that's so sad," and we kind of move on. But if if someone murders someone, then, you know, they go to prison for life, they might get the death penalty on any number of things, but pretty severe punishment regardless. Right. That's saying that one person's life is worth more than an entire species. <laughs> it is to humans, really. I mean, if your track record's anything to go off of. Yeah, well, I mean, it shouldn't... The humans are the worst. We are terrible. We are selfish... Self... I almost said selfless. We are, <laughs> we are selfless are bastards! selfless creatures, and how dare you speak against us? <laughs> no, I mean, we're, we're super selfish. Absolutely. I mean, like... You know why we care about global warming? It's not because it's going to destroy the Earth. It's because it's going to destroy our habitat. Yeah, if we had other, like, places to hang out and chill, I think we would be, like, way less concerned about it. Yeah, I mean, even then, like, I think we'd be kind of sentimental about it. Like, oh, no, we can't live on the Earth anymore. But, like, if, if we right now had colonies on other planets that were thriving, people would just be like, oh, that's a shame about the Earth. <laughs> you know? That's a like, real bummer. Think- Anyone would be bending over backwards trying to preserve the climate as it is, or, you know, correct the climate, if we had other options on the table. We'd be sad, but we wouldn't be desperate. Yeah, but we wouldn't, like, move heaven and earth to fix it. Yeah. Not that we're really doing that now, but a lot of people really want to. We've got a lot of motivation. We just can't stop fighting each other. Yeah, well, once again, we're the worst. Yeah. Back to the key point. Humans are terrible, fundamentally. Our new theme of our show, humans suck. <laughs> humans suck. Oh, man, that's going to come up a lot when we do Bob Peach. It's going to come up so much when we do Bob. Spoilers. I'm so excited. Anyway. Uh, I'm excited every month, guys, but this one's going to be a special one. <laughs> anyway, the point is... <laughs> so, basically, they're arguing, like... It, it, the, the path for it is not to try to bring back species we've already destroyed the path for it is to focus on conserving the species we still have um, and so the next argument the reestablishment of lost value you're not doing that by bringing back a species because like we were talking about earlier with the dinosaurs like they're going to be fundamentally changed by the process that it takes to bring them back they're not going to have like a social structure they're not going to have you know, probably a lot of the behavioral traits of that species. I mean, they might, but there's really no guarantee. And I I think we'd honestly learn a ton from it, just to sort of compare the behaviors of the species as we knew them before to a species that was, like, broadened with zero context. Yeah, so that nature versus nurture argument? Yeah, definitely. I I think it would be really enlightening, but, I mean, that's not fundamentally a good enough reason to embark on this wildly expensive project. But, um... The point is that like it's never going to reestablish the same value because it doesn't have the same value. It's it's still valuable, but it's a different kind of value. So from the creating value perspective, that argument works because, like I was saying earlier, the scientific advances and understanding that would come from the process of of resurrecting a lost species would be incredible, and it would also just be wondrous. It would bring so much kind of social value. It would be inspirational to people. It's like an optimistic narrative for conservation. It's a lot of times you could bring back culturally significant animals, and that would be really important to people too. So, like, there is value to be gained from it. It's just not going to replace what was lost necessarily. Um, the problem with using the argument for conservation last resort, basically, this is our backup plan. It's mainly that it will take away from actual conservation efforts, both in focus and in funding, in perceived importance. It'll make people think, like, even if just subconsciously, 
yeah, we want to save the species, but if we lose them, it's not the end of the world. We can always bring them back. So it kind um, of makes it le- gives us less of a deadline. Yeah, exactly. It kind of takes away from the urgency, makes us sort of more casual about it. I guess I can see that, yeah. And if you're accepting as fact that you can't replace a lost species truly with a like, cloned version of itself, then, you know, doing this instead of conservation is definitely a worse plan. You're not going to... It's not the same as saving the species. It's sort of a hollow um, attempt. So, the uh, arguments against uh, reviving long extinct species include the sort of unnaturalness argument, um, concerns about animal welfare, concerns about ecological harm, and of course, hubris, as we've been talking about a lot, and the idea of playing (laughs) God. Um, The unnaturalist argument doesn't hold water because we've been messing with DNA for ages, uh, just usually not animals, although, I mean, when you breed animals, you're still genetically manipulating them, so, like, yeah, we have been messing with them animals, we just don't think of it that way. Yeah, exactly, it's not just, like, directly <clears throat> modifying the DNA, it's just us influencing what traits propagate. Yeah, and we've been doing it since the dawn of time. Um, not to mention, like, GMO crops, to vaccines, like, <laughs> if we didn't pursue transgenic research, then we would be a less healthy planet. Um, or at least a less healthy populace. So the idea of transgenic research is not fundamentally problematic, although there are, of course, people who will object to it. And, like, we should be respectful of that in the sense that, like, GMO foods always have labels on them. So people don't have to participate in that if they don't want to. But just because they have a problem with it doesn't mean that it's problematic. Right. You know, it's it's not fundamentally wrong. It's just, okay, you give them their space. They don't have to be involved in it. Close that door. We're still going to do our thing. Lock it. Lock the door. (laughs) Exactly. I don't think I've ever actually, like, met anyone that's fundamentally against uh, GMO. I've met Uh, met people that are against, like, like, don't, like, you know, only want to eat vegan or, like, or any number of other things or, like, don't eat gluten even though they're not, you know, celiac, like... But I've never met someone that continuously just avoids GMO. I'm trying to think if I know anybody who does that or who told me that. Maybe they didn't tell me that because I would not have been particularly generous about it. Because <laughs> I think avoiding GMO is pointless. But. Well, because as we said, like, we've been doing that for years. The article told me I should be respectful, so I will. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, Ethics Article. Now I know how to treat people. You've given me the light. Oh, God. <laughs> But yeah, no, you're right. I don't think it actually is very common. Well, no, it's probably common, just not in our circles. That's a good point. We do typically run with STEM and science-y people. Or people who accept STEM. You know, if they're not... Right, people to whom STEM is not witchcraft. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Excellent. And there's no giant conspiracy theories and vaccines and so on and so forth. <sighs> Hopefully. <laughs> anyway, um... So the point is, yeah, the unnaturalist argument isn't good enough to stop you from doing it. Um, additionally, animal welfare concerns are pretty negligible because it's like, come on, we've been doing animal research for forever, and we are really good at oversight now and minimizing harm and all that stuff. So you bring it before an IRB, and you're pretty much golden. Like that's not really a concern. Um, furthermore, ecological fears aren't very strongly founded because. Uh, the author of this article basically argues species that you recreate and you kind of patch them together and you hope for the best, like, they're not going to be... They're not likely to be super well-adaptive or adapted. They're not really likely to become invasive because they probably will have some issues with reproduction and they're just not going to thrive necessarily in a wild environment. It would be very surprising if they did. Um, So... Harm to ecology doesn't seem very likely. Hmm. Um, finally, hubris. It's obviously a risk. It all comes out to that first article, right? Like, humans have a tendency towards arrogance and towards playing God. And when they have tools, sometimes they go too far. Like, it's definitely there. But 
it that those concerns can kind of be allayed because in reality the scientists who would be doing this work i would hope and we could all hope would be thoughtful cautious scientists and as we said earlier like science tends towards caution like you're way more likely to get people like this than you know the henry woos and, and john hammonds of jurassic park right that's typically how science is raised especially looking at the countries it's in typically I, I can speak for at least western science it's typically very uh you know very big on the oversight and all that i imagine there are Definitely. some places that are less so but in the major science capitals that's 100 percent a thing and we have the most resources so you know if it, yeah, although let's you know let's remember it doesn't require that much resources to do really you know to do any sort of dangerous research. Um, oh yeah, as we uh, keep learning. Yeah, exactly. Smallpox and so on. Um, but anyway, basically they're saying like, if you have a group of thoughtful scientists who are committed to addressing risks as as they're observed and who are sort of willing to abandon the pursuit if, in the end, it proves too dangerous or too fundamentally harmful or anything like that, then you're pretty much going to be okay. Like, those are the kinds of people you want doing that research. And then on another note, the there's a sort of idea, um, and it's definitely a fear, and I see where it comes from, and I don't think it's unreasonable to be worried about this, it's the argument that um, that people who do transgenic research basically look at life as a resource that can be tapped and genetic code as Legos that they can put together at their whim. And like, I again, I get where that comes from, but there's really no evidence to back that up, that people who do this kind of research are so callous and thoughtless about it. Yeah, I... It's more based on fear than actual evidence. Right, it's like the worst case scenario. Yeah, that's what you don't want to say. And again, comes back to that first article, like, cautionary tales about science can give people the wrong idea that, you know... The world's full of these mad scientists that are constantly waiting to build dinosaurs and rule, rule the world with them or something? Yeah, which is why I thought it was so interesting, because, like, we all look at Jurassic Park like, oh yeah, what a prescient tale. And it is, and I don't want to take away from that at all, but, um... But could take away anything about the story and just look at them, the you know what happened. But like any any specifics about the story don't really take them into account. You know, like it's yeah. like yeah, human human uh, humans are pretty uh, pretty arrogant. Sure, we're not like building dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, I mean we would if we could, to be honest. Oh, but I probably. Think we'd be a lot more cautious about it. We wouldn't fill an island with them in less than five years and invite our grandchildren there. Yeah, we we do good. We do a good job with it. <laughs> we'd start with a nice small toothless dinosaur and uh, work our way up. So basically, the argument of this article concludes that de-extinction isn't fundamentally problematic from an ethical perspective, but there's also not a really strong argument to do it. So let's not focus too much of our time and money on it right now when we really should be thinking about other methods of conservation. Lots of other things. Yeah, it's like a fun idea and it's cool and it could potentially be like really wonderful and, you know, really profitable for whoever the genius is who finally does it. But it's not priority number one. Exactly. Exactly. I want to leave you with a quote from... Ian Malcolm, and it's not one that's very often quoted, but I think it's really interesting. He says that the great intellectual justification of science has vanished. Ever since Newton and Descartes, science has explicitly offered us the vision of total control. Science has claimed the power to eventually control everything through its understanding of natural laws, but in the 20th century, that claim has been shattered beyond repair. Science has always said that it may not know everything now, but it will know eventually. But now we see that isn't true. It's an idle boast. And I think that we should remember that that's the real lesson of Jurassic Park, is that, you know, science is not limitless. We do our best. We're constantly learning and growing, but we can never see everything. Hmm. Okay. I mean... I take. I do you disagree. I do disagree, but uh, <laughs> carry on. I mean, not of any sort of like you know arrogance about our science, which like as a, mon- a fundamental fact that 
One day we will learn everything there is to learn. One day. You think so? Assuming humanity doesn't go extinct through our own stupidity first. When have we ever found more answers than questions? <clears throat> but, like, the universe is finite, so technically speaking, one day we have to dis- we have to learn. Like, I thought it was pretty accepted that the universe was infinite. No, it's not. There is definitely a boundary <clears throat> to the universe. It's just expanding into infinity. But we don't... Hmm. For all intents and purposes, then. We, I mean, there is a finite amount of knowledge to gain. I just don't think humanity will last long enough to gain it. Oh, I think I think we won't last 200 years. That's just me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not very optimistic about our species' ability to actually survive. <laughs> Let me be super clear. I believe that some species maybe one day will learn everything, but it will not be ours. Intelligent species will learn everything one day, but it will be uh, not us. And if it comes from Earth, it'll be like one of our <laughs> successors. <laughs> But thinking about this, Peter, like, I don't think science will ever answer, you know, why we're here or, you know, why That's, we developed this right, kind of But why are we here is not a scientific question. There's a lot of, like, but these are questions that are important to us. But that's if you a, want to talk about knowing everything, that involves answers to those questions, and we'll never know those. All right, but that, to be fair, that quote was specifically about science. I think we yes. can learn everything there is to know about science, because... <laughs> one day but i don't think you know why are we here will ever be answered uh because well i don't think there's a reason i don't i don't think there's any grand design or grand like why we're here there's no like great purpose of humanity oh yeah we just I mean, if you take religion out of the equation for sure but no but like even if i sit like you know i'm still at least mildly religious but like if i take that out and like you know i i just don't like if i don't use a religious argument for it i don't think there's a, a purpose to humanity i think we just kind of muddle along and do the best we can maybe all i know is that humans have always been asking and if we hadn't been then religion wouldn't be a thing in our culture yeah no that's absolutely true we've always been wondering what else is out there and, and why are like you know why are we here why are we different yeah why are we different why are we not the ape why are we not the chimpanzee yeah, is it just a matter of neurons, or is it something else? Is the, is there a spark that makes us different? Which is, uh, you know, a little more metaphysical than I ever wanted to get in these conversations. But I guess that's where we're at. And definitely a question we can't answer. And not really very related to Jurassic Park. So that one's on me. Uh, well, I um, mean, no, 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 no. It's a li- okay, here, I'm going I'm to reel back in. Ready? You ready for this? Oh, good. Do it. Let All right. See. So, like... What was I wonder if there was a difference between the animals in fiction that were created and like a regular animal other than like, you know, their environment. Like was there some level that humanity just couldn't was the fact that it was basically a man made species because the argument is made that or can be made that like these species are not they're they are man made fiction like Man made didn't recreate the T Rex, it created its own animal that matches our preconceived notions of the T Rex. Right? Because, like, they took their DNA, they mixed it around, and all that. So, basically, humanity created life. So, what is there a difference between naturally evolved life and humanity's life? We didn't create life, we assembled life. Mm, No, we created life. We took pre-existing parts and put them back together. But those pre-existing parts are like... I mean, there's only so many billions of combinations, or really quadrillions of combinations of DNA. So, you know, the, and those that DNA has is not life in and of itself. It's, the co- it's that combination of DNA that makes life. So, we took life, we took a, a previous form of life, some, some patterns from it, we copied some patterns, we threw in some other patterns, and we made that life. I mean, basically, we assembled the blueprints, and we assembled the parts, and we put them all together in an egg, and the egg grew into a dinosaur. We did not design it ourselves. We just put it back together. Well, we didn't put it back together, because we took other species. Yeah, we put it back together with some patches. Right. It's like if you cut up a piece of paper, it's never going to look the same, but you'll tape it up. It's still the same writing you didn't write it yourself okay but like a piece of paper back together but frankenstein monster wasn't a man frankenstein's monster was something different we should do frankenstein we should do frankenstein that that definitely for sure but frankenstein's monster wasn't a man he was a different form (laughs) of life in in created by frankenstein 
So, isn't that the same thing? Just like a, a genetic level? Like, basically, this is Frankenstein with genetics. I don't think you can bring Frankenstein up as a piece of evidence, A, because, I don't know, have you ever read it? Yeah. Oh, you have? Yeah. Oh, good job. Have you not? Um, I have not. You're the worst. I know, I'm terrible. Um, okay, fine. But B, <laughs> So, checkmate. Frankenstein I read it. Is, <laughs> it's fiction. You know, it's not actual evidence but I'm saying of the that's, world I'm, and how okay, it works. You're it's right. interpretation. I'm saying that's an accepted argument, is what I'm saying. Like, yeah, accepted by who? I'm not accepting. Because <laughs> yeah, you never read it. Your opinion is invalid on the topic. <laughs> Among us yes. readers of Frankenstein, it's an accepted opinion. <laughs> I guess I should take your word for it. Yeah, well, join the club. It's yeah, I read it. Uh, okay. <laughs> I will. Cool. Shall we uh, say goodbye? Uh, yeah, I guess. So we got like our four minutes of of poorly <clears throat> put together sign off shit. Um. Yeah. I guess, first of all, our next episode will be in two weeks, and that will be <laughs> Annihilation, March 1st. Woohoo. Um, we're, I mean, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good way through it. Cece, are you done that book yet? No. I kind of paused to start doing Jurassic Park research. Okay. Yeah, so, I'm, I'm a good bit through it, and I'm kind of, I'm enjoying it. It's a little, little tense, little... It's real spooky. It's really weird to read. Um. Yes. It's a very weird writing style that I'm not super into the, I'm not super into, like, the the interactions, I'm super into the world it, it describes. Yeah, the prose is beautiful for one thing. So if you're a fan of that, get on board. Overall, I think it's a very <laughs> good book, so I would suggest if you are uh, enjoying the show and you plan to continue listening to it, go ahead and give that a quick uh, quick listen to. Because I think actually the, the writing style is going to come up a lot in conversation just because it's very unique, I think. It's honestly probably my favorite thing about the book, so it might come up a lot, even though it's not even really what our podcast is supposed to be about. Hey, the we might have an identity crisis over this. It's fine. Writing. Okay, so we've got that because <laughs> we have so much expertise on that. Uh, <laughs> Just like everything we talk about. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, we also have um, our other podcast we do, uh, the Universe in You, by yours truly. Uh, also on the uh, Signifying Nothing Network, we talk about space shit. This week, I think we're doing. Um, I think we're doing galaxies. I think we're doing different types of galaxies and how they we think they form. I swear you come up with topics while you're recording this podcast because you realize you have to tell them what the topic is. Uh, no, I come up with topics while I'm recording the other podcast. <laughs> and I, I, At the end of the episode, you're like, I think next week I'm feeling um, galaxies? I, okay. What happens is I roll die right. that have like things on them. <laughs> and that's then combines nice. them. So like one says form and the other one's a galaxy. So I say formation of galaxies and that's it. <laughs> Form of galaxy. <laughs> no, that's not what I meant, Dice. <laughs> Damn it, not again. Alright. Uh, oh, we're supposed to get my parts back together. <laughs> okay. Uh, so widespread. So now. if if you like the show, uh go ahead and uh, you know, go ahead and comment. Go ahead and rate. Uh go ahead and subscribe. You know, those good good things that you can do for us. Please do. Uh if and we'd love feedback. Yeah, we'd love it. If you have any issues with our show or um, you just, you know, want to want to chat, want to hit us up, you can find us. Um, let's see. Where, where, where can they find us? SignifyingNothingNetwork.com or Facebook.com slash SignifyingNothingNetwork. We also have an email account. It's a sci-fi sidebar at SignifyingNothingNetwork.com. You can hit us up there. Um, you know, whatever you want to do. Like I said, find us on Facebook, or our website, whatever. Uh, float your boat. If you have any issues with what we said, let us know. If you like what we said, let us know. If you have any ideas for uh, future topics, let us know. Uh, we have a pretty long list of books and things like that we want to get to, but we want one, we don't want to burn through like old classics too fast. Uh, and two, there's only so many we really know. <laughs> yeah, like honestly, there's a lot of books we've already read, and we're just going to reread for this, and then like we're out of books. So. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Go ahead, uh, we're also, I think, probably open to doing other forms of sci-fi yeah. movies and so on. Yeah, maybe do like a, maybe do like a Star Trek TV episode. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, if you guys, if there's anything you really want to hear us talk about, um, please let us know. Yeah, and we'll cater to you because there's like 20 listeners. Which, by the way, way more than we thought. So we expected. Hi, welcome and thank you. <laughs> cool. Wait, is that more <laughs> listeners than the number of people in our family? 
<laughs> it's not just our relatives anymore. Well, actually, no, Yay. we do have enough relatives, but not like our nuclear family. And I'm pretty sure we've kept a secret from our cousins. Yeah. Cool, Mom cool. wanted us to tell our cousins, and I was like, no. Nah. Oh, God, no. All right. <laughs> they wouldn't understand. All right, Zizi, do we have anything else? Uh, no, I got nothing else. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening. Yes, thank you. Yes. Thanks. This has been Sci-Fi Sidebar from the Signifying Nothing Network. Tale told by idiots. Thank you.